True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Tiso Blackstar Group, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live, and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Tiso Blackstar Group or its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to a Spotlight Minisode. In our minisodes, we discuss true crime stories that are currently in the news and give you updates on cases we've covered so far. Happy New Year, true crime South Africans! My wish for every single person listening is that 2020 is your best year yet. I'm not a big fan of New Year's resolutions as I don't believe that you need a special day to make up your mind to change your life. What I do hope is that in 2020, every single one of us will live our best lives, whatever that may mean to you. Before we get into today's show, I'd like to thank our Patreon supporters. Last week, I announced I'd opened a Patreon page for the show in order to help raise funds to expand my research capabilities and purchase new equipment. I was seriously blown away by your response. In every episode, I'll give a shout out to our Patreon supporters, and when we reach 200 supporters, I'll start releasing a Patreon-exclusive episode every month. Thank you to the following listeners who've signed up to support the show on Patreon. Toast, Angie, Marie, Adriana Coit-King, Megan Repko, Megan Rainker, Janine Stein, Nanette, Tanya Beneka, Machlatze Chirane, and Rose Lee Smith. Thank you so much for your support. I really appreciate it. Patreon support starts at $1, which is around 15 Rand. And you can change or cancel your support at any time if you need to. I'll leave a link to our Patreon page in the show notes or you can go to patreon.com and search for True Crime South Africa. Every single manner of support for the show is vital to its success, whether it's financial or sharing of episodes, recommending the show, listening to episodes, or interacting on our social media pages. Every single bit helps. The following episode may contain sensitive material, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. First up on the show this week is an update on one of our previous cases. In episode 13, we covered the case of the Samurai Killer, a case from 2008 where Monet Haramsa, 18 years old at the time, murdered 16-year-old Jacques Pretorius and severely injured three other people with a samurai sword he'd taken to school. In early December 2019, I was advised that Haramsa had applied for parole. In 2018, when the possibility that he may be released early due to good behaviour was announced, Members of law enforcement and members of the forensic psychology community came forward to state that they didn't believe Mornay was ready for release. I've been advised that Mornay was in fact declined parole at this hearing. 
Parole hearings are always difficult for the families of victims who have to face the perpetrators of the crime that either impacted them personally or took away a loved one. In South Africa, it is required that the families of victims be advised when an offender in their case has applied for parole, as they have the right to present evidence that objects to the offender's parole. Something that I wanted to point out that is super important if you are a family member of a victim or a direct victim yourself, you must ensure that your contact details are always updated with the law enforcement official and the Department of Corrections dealing with your case. I know that it's disruptive because you just want to move on with your lives, but the offender has the right to apply for parole. And if you as an impacted person cannot be reached, the parole hearing will proceed without you. I have no doubt that Mornay's family would have liked to have seen him home for Christmas, and I'm sure they were bitterly disappointed when parole was declined. But I do think that it is in everyone's best interests that he's not released until the Department of Corrections feels that he is ready. If he was released in December, he would have only served 11 years of his 20-year sentence. Jacques Pretorius' family already felt that the sentence was too light for the taking of a laugh. And 11 years would have just been unfair, in my opinion. I have a lot of questions around parole procedures that I have yet to be able to answer with online resources. And I'd love to be able to interview someone who has first-hand knowledge of the South African parole procedure. If anyone listening has knowledge of parole procedures, please get in touch with me by email on wordsmith195 at gmail.com. I'd love to be able to pick your brain so that we can all understand how these processes work. My thoughts go out to the family of Jacques Pretorius. One of the cases that stood out for me in the news recently was the case of Liam Nokia. I'll do a full episode on this case at some stage, but I really wanted to discuss it in this mini-sode because it's such a strange and heartbreaking case. Liam disappeared in 2017 when he was just three years old. Liam's father, Nancy's Nokia, drove away from the premises of his estranged partner, Chanel Brooks, with Liam in the car in November 2017. Shortly afterwards, he phoned Chanel to tell her that she'd never see Liam again. Nancy's then disappeared. Chanel received a horrifying message from Nancy shortly after the kidnapping. It was a burned lock of Liam's hair, and with it was a note that read, Good luck with your life without me and Liam. A case of kidnapping was opened with the police, and Nancy's would eventually be arrested, but there was no sign of Liam. Nancy's claimed that he had sent Liam to live with a couple overseas, and that he was alive and well. Even when threatened with jail time, he refused to reveal Liam's whereabouts. Police decided that there was sufficient evidence to charge Nancy's with the murder of Liam, despite the fact that no body had been found. And on the 13th of December, Nancy's Nokia was found guilty of the murder, as well as the aggravated assault against his former partner and their two daughters. Still, 
he refused to give up the location of Liam. Despite evidence to the contrary, Chanel Brooks lived with the hope that her son was still alive, and that perhaps his father had just given him up to another couple to raise. In a bizarre coincidence, which would crush his mother's hopes, just five days after her ex-partner was sentenced to life in prison, a man walking his dog in Harrysmith came across the remains of a small child in a shallow grave. Items buried with the body, as well as pieces of clothing, were identified by Chanel as having belonged to Liam. She had bought him a pair of Spider-Man sandals a few days before his father had kidnapped him, and he was wearing them the last time she saw her son. These sandals were among the items that police presented to her for identification. DNA testing will now be done to confirm that the remains indeed belong to Liam. Sickeningly, Nantes has played a cat-and-mouse game with police, Liam's mother, and the press over the last two years. In April 2019, he called a reporter from the U magazine and told him that Liam was very much alive. When the reporter begged him to just give them Liam's location, Nantes claimed that he couldn't because he was protecting Liam from his mother. Nantes said that Chanel was a wonderful wife, but a terrible mother, and this is why he had to take Liam. For a man who was recently found guilty of murdering his son and assaulting his two other children, I don't think he has any right to be making statements about parenting. He sent the police on countless wild goose chases, raising Chanel's hopes, only to have them dashed again. Since the recovery of the remains, presumed to be Liam, the police have stated that they are investigating the possibility that other people could have been involved in the kidnapping and murder. They do believe that Liam was killed on the same day that he was kidnapped. I'll keep an eye on this case and let you know when the DNA results come back. The best case scenario we can hope for now is that Chanel will be able to lay her little boy to rest and that Nancy's Nokia will no longer have a single thing to hold over her head so he can rot in jail where he belongs. In another disturbingly similar case, which I've discussed on the show in a minisode before, in November 2019, Onka Mashanini was found guilty and given a life sentence for the murder of three-year-old Lee Mentor. Lee's body has never been found, and although it was hoped that Mashinini would reveal Lee's whereabouts in his pre-sentencing hearing, he never did. Lee was reported missing in March 2018, after he'd been left in the care of Mashinini, who was Lee's mother's boyfriend at the time. Lee's mother Kayla had left the child with Mashinini on a few occasions, and her interactions with him and the child had always been positive, giving her no reason to believe that her child would be in danger. Mashinini was only supposed to care for Lee for a few hours, and then return him to Kayla's mother's house. He would later claim that he did this, but there was a couple outside the house who'd said the old lady wasn't home, and that they'd take Lee to her. That was the last time he allegedly saw Lee. 
Machinini's story very quickly unraveled, and two spots of Lee's blood were found on his shoes, as well as the bathroom at his parents' home, where he'd been caring for Lee. A photograph of Lee was found on Mashanini's phone, which had been taken that day. The child appeared to have a white substance on his face. Mashanini claimed that Lee had been stung by a bee, and he'd applied the ointment to the sting. In court, prosecutors would state that it's possible that Lee had an allergic reaction to the bee sting, and had passed away as a result, after which Mashanini had hidden his body. Private investigator Wendy Pascoe has been working the case for Lee's family and recently revealed that cell phone activity on Mashanini's phone may have given them new leads of possible places to search. She doesn't believe that Mashanini acted alone, though, as she doesn't think he was capable of hiding the body so well that it's never been found without assistance. At the same time that Mashanini was found guilty, of Lee's murder. He was also found guilty of assault and armed robbery relating to another instance where he robbed and assaulted an ex-girlfriend. Getting a murder conviction in a case where there's no body is very difficult. Adult victims are possibly more difficult because they could have made their own exit, but with children it may be slightly easier as they're either in your care or they're not. I take my hat off to law enforcement and our court system for having secured both convictions in what must have been extremely difficult circumstances. My heart aches for the mothers of these boys. Chanel, at least, may be able to soon find some closure if the remains are identified as Liam's. At least she'll know where her baby is and be able to lay him to rest. But Kayla still has to wonder every single day. Although there's compelling evidence that Lee is deceased, I'm sure that as a mother, she still wants to hold on to the tiniest shred of hope that he might still be alive, until definitively proven otherwise. All the while, a cold-blooded man sits in jail with his little piece of control and plays with the lives of others. I think that the only thing we can take away from both these cases is that no matter how well you think you know someone, you have no idea what they're capable of. And sadly, we have no choice but to be highly suspicious and protective over our own safety and the safety of those we love. Because there are monsters out there that wear the disguise of wonderful partners. In the case of the serial killer who was prowling Pretoria early this year, killing homeless people, there have been no further attacks since an arrest was made in June. But police are also saying that they don't believe the man arrested was responsible for all of the deaths. Manusi Motupi was arrested in June for two attempted murder charges. Both victims were homeless and were stabbed, but thankfully survived. Motupi has been denied bail and will appear in court again this month. The police are adamant, though, that they have no evidence to link him to the other murders. While it does seem a bit strange that the murders stopped at the very time Motupi was arrested, 
I do have full trust in our ability to investigate serial killings. We are, after all, one of the best places in the world at serial killer investigations. It is entirely possible that the killer had heard of Motupi's arrest and changed his MO and moved to a different area in order to take advantage of the arrest, perhaps hoping the blame would be laid at Motupi's door. The long delay between Motupi's arrest and his trial starting does make me wonder if there's further investigation going on though. I'll keep an eye on this one and let you know about any developments. After having discussed some pretty heavy cases so far, I thought I'd wrap up this mini-sode with something a little more light-hearted. While crime is never funny, sometimes criminals do some pretty dumb things. So here's a collection of some of South Africa's dumbest criminals from the last decade. In 2018, four car thieves were spotted in a stolen vehicle in Tsukai, Cape Town. Police gave chase, and the men seemed determined to get away, or die trying. The driver of the stolen vehicle must have been very focused on the task at hand, but he should have perhaps focused a little more on what the road signs were saying, because he seemed to have missed the one that said, You are entering the grounds of Polesmore Prison. Yep, he really did. He drove onto prison grounds delivering himself and three accomplices straight into the hands of police, stopping just short of wrapping himself in a pink bow. If only all criminals were kind enough to organise their own transportation to prison, we'd probably save a lot of taxpayers' money. The criminals, although not the brightest, were actually extremely dangerous. Between the four, they had 35 different pending cases against them for murder, attempted murder, theft and robbery. Also in 2018, two criminals broke into a house in Durban and stole a laptop. They would most likely have taken more, but they were disturbed by eagle-eyed neighbours who screamed at them. Both men then tried to squeeze back out through a small hole they'd made in the palisade fencing around the house at the same time. In the squeeze, one of the robbers very kindly left behind a photograph of himself, which police later collected as evidence. It could only have been better if it was his ID book, but he wasn't that dumb. It was really just a nice, smiling pic of him posing at home. He and his accomplice were arrested later that same day. Also in KZN, a patrolling security company came across a man being beaten outside a supermarket by a crowd of people. In halting the altercation, the security officer discovered that the owner of the supermarket had discovered the man in his store when he opened up that morning. The would-be thief had snuck in just before closing time the previous day and then proceeded to steal 50,000 rand in cash and 30,000 rand in airtime vouchers which he strapped to his body. Flush with his takings, the man had proceeded to look for an exit. But the owner had secured his store well enough that, outside of opening hours, no one was getting in, and they also weren't getting out. Undeterred, the thief decided he would hide and wait until the shop filled up in the morning, and then just slip out as though he were a customer. That would have actually been a pretty good plan 
except he found a bale of chips that was really comfy, and fell asleep. The owner found him still curled up on his self-made Simba bed in the morning. Just to prove that we have dumb criminals all over the country, an East London homeowner couldn't believe his eyes when a man came knocking on his door asking for work, wearing clothing that had been stolen from his house in a prior robbery. That's right. This genius either forgot that he'd robbed that house, or had so much stolen clothing that he didn't realise it came from that particular house. This exceedingly bright gentleman was given a nice orange overall to wear instead after he was arrested. To wrap up our dumb criminal stories with, we have three would-be house robbers in Johannesburg in 2017 who came prepared with a crowbar to force open the front gate of the home. Unfortunately for them, the homeowner was inside and hearing the scraping sounds against his gates, went to investigate. The YouTube video I watched was filmed by the homeowner. It just shows a snippet, but according to reports, he filmed these guys for at least five minutes while they fumbled to try and break open the gates. He's probably about five meters from them at the time, and they have absolutely no clue. About halfway through the video, the calm homeowner clears his throat to let them know he's there. They stop what they're doing, look up, realise they're being filmed, and then spend a good 20 to 30 seconds looking at each other with absolute bewilderment on their faces before deciding it's probably a good time to get out of there. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a wrap for today's minisode. If you enjoyed this minisode, Please remember to follow us or subscribe on the app that you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. I'll be back next Friday with a full episode. As always, thank you for all of your support and I'll chat to you soon.